What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Now, we've been away for a while, and I'm proud to announce that in the interim, we have signed with Ars Longa Media. Ars Longa Media is a veteran-owned production company that is as passionate as we are about the intersection of health and creativity, so we are thrilled to be working with them. And I'm very excited to be starting back up the show again by welcoming Sean Morgan of Seether back to the podcast. You may know Seether from songs such as Fake It, Remedy, and of course, my personal favorite, Broken. Seether is celebrating the 20th anniversary of their gold-selling debut, Disclaimer, with an expanded reissue on vinyl, CD, and digital. Check out how to get the Disclaimer reissue and all things Seether at seether.com. One of the reasons why I love talking with Sean is that he's such a strong mental health advocate, in particular being willing to share his personal mental health journey, including his struggles with abuse, neglect, depression, and addiction. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, we want you to apply principles of humanistic psychology to your life so that you can find your purpose, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around you who will support your most authentic and purpose-driven life. And one of the things that can interfere with our connecting with ourselves and leading a fulfilling life is our early relationships, including relationships with our family. And what Sean describes in our discussion is how the abuse and neglect that he faced when he was growing up, particularly from his mother, left him vulnerable in many ways. Perhaps one of the most important ways that he felt vulnerable was that he didn't think that his emotions mattered. And he didn't think that if he was struggling in a relationship, that trying to resolve those struggles would matter or be successful. And so as a result, Sean was not able to do what he referred to as, quote, empty his marbles. And he used this term to refer to the idea that if you keep filling a jar with marbles, it will eventually overflow. And similarly, if you never express or process your emotions, your emotions will eventually overwhelm you. And in our discussion, Sean describes how not feeling that he could express or process his feelings or work constructively to resolve conflicts in his family contributed to a worsening of his mental health. He explained how he often felt lonely, even when he was with other people. He always felt that he needed to please others and was terrified of disappointing people, and he struggled with any form of criticism. And this approach to understanding his own experience and relationships with others left him feeling empty, contributing to his depression and his addiction, particularly alcoholism. One of the most difficult things that we face as we seek to lead an authentic and purpose-driven life is recognizing that while these strategies that we develop earlier in our life may have been the best we could do to manage those early relationships, they may not be the most adaptive way of relating to ourselves or others as we move ahead with our life. We have to go through what is often a very difficult process of recognizing that how we connect to ourselves and others may need to change if we want to have the most healthy and fulfilling life that we can. And Sean talks about how he is trying to make those changes and build that life with his wife and new baby, as well as contemplating what's next for him in his career. So let's hear what Sean has to say. Hey, Sean, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It is going okay. Uh, but more importantly, things sound like they are really going for you. Congratulations on your new child. Thank you. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> he's a bundle of joy. <laughs> Who uh, He's uh, quite proficient at vomiting on my shoulders. In fact, I had to change my hoodie that I was wearing earlier because I realized I had about a weekend's worth of regurgitation 
it wasn't a good look for me. So <laughs> no, it's great, man. It's it's a uh, it's it's another milestone for us. We have a five year old daughter now. We have this little eight week, almost nine week old baby, and I'm fairly certain that I'm done with children. <laughs> I think I think I'm I'm too old and and, and grumpy at this point to uh, be able to go through this process another time. But uh, we're we're very happy to have him, and he certainly goes out of his way to make me feel loved and and wanted. <laughs> obviously it's the the opposite of that but yeah no um, uh, there's a lot going on and it's a good time to be alive i think man there's a lot a lot to be thankful for i guess you know well so on that point it's the 20th anniversary of disclaimer and you guys are coming out with uh expanded edition album is that do i have that right yeah, it's it's basically the reissue's got new artwork because I, I wasn't a fan of the original artwork at all. But that was at a time when we were told what to do rather than asked for our input. So we changed the artwork up. We did some, I think we tweaked the the mixes a little bit. And then we added a live show from Hampton Beach Casino in 2003 that we, we happened to play all of the songs on this album from. And there's a, a, a cover of Nirvana's Something in the Way that I did at a, a radio station. And it's just, we just want to throw in some bonus stuff, kind of repackage it to make it look like we originally envisioned it. Because originally when we brought the album out, <clears throat> or it was released, we were signed to a record company that basically told us what to do. And the owner of the record company came up with the idea that the first album for a brand new band that nobody's ever heard of shouldn't have the, the, the band's name on the cover <laughs> and also should have 10 different covers because that won't be confusing at all. So I felt like it was kind of a, a weird way to launch a band and its career, but at least we now get to sort of present the the package in a way that we think better represents where we would have wanted it to be, you know? So with that, you know, able to kind of go back and think about the original album 20 years yeah. later, I, I am very curious. It's been 20 years in this business. It's a lot of living, you know, yeah. obviously you're embarking on this new phase of your life. I mean, lessons from, from 20 years, a lot of potential wisdom there. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've come to a sort of a crossroads which I never thought would happen to me. And I think partly it was brought on by, again, being told that we are useless and, and meaningless and told to stay at home for a couple of years. And partly because my family's expanding and my role in the family expands. And so I now don't live for myself as much as I live for my kids and my wife, right? So when I was 20 years ago, it was all about me. It was all about having fun and being out on the road and experiencing touring and experiencing when we went overseas, other cultures, other countries, and really sort of unfortunately spending many years of my life living a cliche as as far as like the drugs, the booze, the the woman, all the, you know, all the stuff that you look back and you go, yeah, that was kind of sleazy. I don't think my dad would have looked at that and said, hey, I'm proud of you, son. You know what I mean? <laughs> he died in 2017. And, and, and that was another turning point for me in a sense where I wanted to look at my life and say, all right, if my dad can see me, what is his opinion of how I'm behaving? Because in my mind, he was like the epitome of a gentleman and a, he was a kind, soft-spoken guy. And I know if I ever wrote a book before he died, he would not have been very happy with a lot of the things if I was completely honest about them, right? So- 20 years ago, it was all about the experience and living in the moment and just kind of going where the wind blows you. You know, it was if you find yourself waking up on the floor of a hotel you didn't even know you went to, that's fine. You know, if you miss your flight because you, you passed out in the bar at the airport, that's all the stuff where it was like 
there's no consequences. Have fun. That that was it. It was really quite selfish, I think. And then you know now you cut twenty years later, and because of now having a family, you you throw that all away. And I look at everything now. Every decision I make is for my children. So moving, for example, we we lived in a house in a neighborhood. It was nice, and and the neighbors were great, but we didn't have the kind of property that we needed to have animals or grow our own vegetables or just be a little bit more self-sufficient in general. And also just to move to somewhere where it's quieter. And now we do have that. And I look at it because my daughter is is crazy about animals. The idea that she could have a couple of little goats outside one day or some chickens where she can go get the eggs. That's really incredibly exciting to her. And that's kind of where my focus is now. So I think a lot of my life passed me by in a haze. Because when you're 20s, you're in your 20s, you're invincible. Nothing's ever going to take you out, you know? So do all the things whenever you want, however you want. I mean, I did some stupid things, man, like flying with drugs in in, in my bags and thankfully never getting caught, you know, just insane things that I was doing because I felt I was invincible and and it was just, it's just just ridiculous. So you get older and then you realize, no, I'm not invincible. I had an incident uh, last year, actually. I was on tour. And I was on the phone with my wife and, and I hung up with her. And immediately afterwards, I lay down in bed. I hadn't been drinking or anything. I hadn't touched drugs in years. And I lay down and my heart went into AFib and I panicked. So I, I went down to the, the lobby and I, I said to the guy, hey, I need, a, I need an ambulance now. Something's really wrong here. And um, went in the back of an ambulance. To, you know, and then they, they said it was AFib and my heart rate was bouncing between 120 to 230 beats per minute. It was crazy. And I've never, you know, I panicked. I really, really panicked. So I was in the hospital for the night, came out, went to a clinic, and and I was basically going to have my heart electrocuted back into rhythm. (laughs) So it's like, I'm sitting there going, dude, I'm 43 years old. And I've lived, I've lived three lifetimes, right? I've, I've certainly, I've, I've lived fast. I've lived hard. And I now am going to start paying the price, it seems, (laughs) you know, it's like the realization when you go, oh yeah, so I'm not indestructible. So I wish I had known back then that it's okay to just slow down. You know, you don't have to be up for three days at a time. You're not missing out on this amazing experience by going to that party or going to that bar. I feel like I was so consumed by it all because in my mind, it was fleeting. I never, ever would have expected to be here 20 years later talking about it, let alone surviving it. Uh, there were plenty of times when I think I should not have survived whatever I was doing. And I think every time I did survive, I was emboldened in this whole, I'm Keith Richards kind of scenario that I had going on in my head. And I, I did. I just basically treated myself terribly, especially after my brother died. I, I went really down into a dark hole. And that took me many years to, to, to dig my way out of. And I, I, I don't think I ever really fully did. And then my, my dad died in 2017. And that was a big hit. I basically, my, my, my dad died. I flew home. We had a baby shower for my daughter. Then I flew immediately to Wales to record an album with some friends of mine. And then I came back and went on the road for like a year. And none of that was helpful. Or any of the past traumas that I had, I wish I could tell myself now too, were I, I wouldn't work through them. I wouldn't digest them or even properly mourn. I would throw myself back into work. So about two weeks after my brother's suicide, I was back shooting a music video. And we were back out on the tour. And none of us had been to any kind of counseling or we had one session where a guy came out and sat with all of us band and crew and said, Hey, um, grief uh, is important to deal with because his analogy was that imagine all your emotions are, are like a, a jar 
inside you and every emotion is a marble. And if you don't empty the jar every once in a while, eventually it's going to overflow. And I sort of, I took that analogy away from, from that one session we had with him. And I, I've sort of kept it in my head at all times, sort of subconsciously, but there are things that I handle very differently now because again, my mindset back then was all about me, all about chasing the dream. I, I was focused on that like a laser. And I'm at a point now where a lot of <laughs> physically, you don't think about when you're 20 years old and you're jumping around on stage that when you're 40, you're going to have two herniated discs in your neck. <laughs> you don't think about on top of that, you're going to have a bulging disc in your in your lumbar vertebra. You don't think about your joints are, are seizing up because you just abused them for so long. You hit your 40s and suddenly it's like, oh, hey, here we are. Here's, here's the first problem. And then it's like this domino effect, it seems. So with that in mind too, it's like my mindset on <clears throat> my musical career is shifting. Because my family is now more important than than I am. And therefore, they are more important than music is. And therefore, they are more important than touring is. So that's a, that's the crossroad. Is, is, it's a potential crossroad, right? It's potential for walking away and saying, okay, that was a good run. Which I would be lying if I didn't say I considered over the past three years many times. Because nothing is as, as it was anymore, regardless of whether we want to believe it or not. See, like at the end of 2019, when we took some time off and did an album, somewhere between there and now, so much has drastically shifted in the in the music business and the and the way we tour that it's almost like the odds are stacked against you. You know, you, you look into trying to tour countries that are beyond America's borders, and it becomes almost prohibitively expensive. So what's the point, right? I mean, I know you, you're gonna let people down by not showing up, but do you honor the fans or do you honor your family? Is there a way to balance both? without hurting one or the other, <laughs> preferably neither. So that's 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 where I'm at as far as today anyway, where I'm at where I don't know what the future looks like because I have a very big part that I play in this family. I'm the one who gets up at six in the morning and takes my, my daughter to school. I'm the one who lets the dogs out to, when they need to go to the bathroom. I make dinner at night. I put my daughter down. I either doing dishes or laundry or whatever as much as I can while my wife looks after our baby. He's pretty demanding. He, the first the first four or five weeks was really stressful because of the constant grumbling and whining and moaning and the sleeplessness is, is another thing that puts everybody on edge. But I wouldn't feel right leaving her to then shoulder the, the other burdens that I do on top of what she already has to do. So to me, it's more important to keep them happy. <laughs> you know, I've got three people that rely on me. And because of that, I don't want to say that it's anhedonia, but it does feel like I'm almost starting to resent the idea of touring because it takes me away from these people, right? And they say, oh, let's take them with you. Well, that, that's that's not always possible. Yeah, it's I'm at an interesting place because I still love music and I still love to play music and I still love being in the band. But again, the the priority has shifted from me and what I want to what everybody else needs and wants. And then ironically, <laughs> what takes care of everybody is the music and the touring, but then me being here takes care of them as well. So I can't obviously be in two places at once. So we're going to have to figure out how to tour smarter that takes us away from home less, but still manages to take care of everybody in the band and, and the crew guys and their families. You know what I mean? It's, I'm trying to find the strike a balance where I can take care of everybody. <laughs> And, and I, you know, I, I like to take care of people. I like to provide people with stability in a job and a, a healthy work environment and all these things. Um, 
the older I'm getting, the more my take on that and my insistence on taking care of other people is going to start hurting me and my family. You know what I mean? And I need to find a balance there. You know, one of the things that you said right at the beginning, I'm kind of curious just to go back to is that you were saying that I don't know how, I don't know how you phrase it, but almost like you missed out on life earlier Mm -hmm. on. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is that most people, if they were to describe how they missed out on life, one of the first things that they would say is something like, well, they didn't do something like what you did. So now, and and that's for people who who would think about it, not doing it successfully. So right. they, they wouldn't think to themselves like, oh, I missed out on, you know, being a multi-platinum selling band with a long career. They think to themselves like, right. oh, I didn't take those two <laughs> years to be in my band and, and with the assumption that it wouldn't work, but at least I'd right. have that experience. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, what were you feeling not connected to as you were essentially living the life that most people fantasize that they would connect right. to perfectly? You know, you live in a fishbowl, right? Every time you get off a bus or off of an RV or whatever it is, then there is an expectation of you. You know, there's, there's guys that I know that are genuinely love to be the center of attention, that love to be in the conversation all the time. And I've always been more of an introvert and I've always been more self-conscious than than a lot of these other guys that do this job. I mean, for somebody who doesn't like big crowds, I certainly picked a, the wrong vocation, I would say. I've also always been the guy that assumes that when you're walking in a mall, for example, and there's somebody starts laughing, it's about you. And, like, and it's, it's this irrational thing that I've had my entire life. But how I missed out was there were so many experiences that were clouded. There, it wasn't like I was, you know, my eyes were open, my senses were clear um, on paper, it's and in practice, it's all very fun and exciting and fast paced. But if you ask me how many things I remember, there are some that I obviously do remember because they were either that great or that bad. Um, and these are the milestones. But there's a lot of them in between where it's like you could insert, oh, yeah, probably did drugs, drank a lot there and then passed out or whatever into any one of those gaps. And that's what was what was filling it. So there was never really any kind of personal fulfillment in, in that sense. You know, you play the shows and for the first few years, it's really super fun because it's exciting. You're doing this for a living. Oh my God, I can't believe this. And even for the first 10 years, it can be like that. But then you get to a point where, you know, if you eat the same meal every day, that meal eventually becomes something that you could despise. And I think there were many tours we did where, I, where they pushed us out there for so long and so many nights in a year that I started despising it. And then I would take it out on myself. So I'm not connecting to it now because I don't want to be here. There were times when I would go into a bathroom of a place, having been told another tour was booked or it was extended or something, and I would smash my hand into the bricks to try and break it so I couldn't go on the tour. And I must have done that three or four times in my career. I guess I just didn't hit hard enough because I, I never quite did that. I've bloodied my knuckles against the wall a few times in my career to prevent myself from having to do something that I was told I needed to do. I was completely out of my control. So that's another reason why we don't really connect. You think about you, you tour Europe. Oh, that's amazing. That sounds so great. Yes, it is amazing and great. But you don't see Europe. You don't see Europe. You you may occasionally get a day to go if you feel up to it because you haven't put yourself through the ringer the night before. But if you if you may you may have an occasion to go see the Eiffel Tower or the Colosseum 
you know, and I did have those experiences, but for the most part, you say, you know, you do Europe, they cram in as many dates as they possibly can over the shortest amount of possible or longest amount. You know, so let's say if it's 50 day tour, they try and get you to play 45 shows, not even including the two days of travel. So you basically have no time off and you, you, you don't get to experience or enjoy the culture where you are. You may, if you get to go out and have dinner, but for the most part, you're in a bus in a back alley that smells like pee and sour milk, you play a show, you back on the bus and you go to the next country. Same thing here. It's just, you go from state to state, city to city. The connection with the crowd is, is one thing. You know, you're playing to people that are loving it and watching it grow over the years and really appreciating that experience. That's one thing. But the rest of it becomes a blur because it's all the same. It's Groundhog Day. It's just the location that changes and the venue that changes. You basically fall into this sort of self-destructive, or I did, self-destructive routine of drink, do drugs, sleep late, get up, feel like crap, get to the earliest you can have a drink to start feeling better, and then play a show, and then you just go back into the drugs because now you feel great. So it's like it's just it's this vicious cycle. I mean, I ended up in a hospital in Boston one time because I'd been up for three days before that. I thought I was fine. I was, it was This is going back probably 10 years or so. And I'm up on stage and I'm so dehydrated that I, my hands cramp up. In the middle of the song, I turn around and I'm, and I'm desperately looking for somebody to help me because I think this is it, right? And again, I was living in the back lounge of a bus. So there's nothing to connect to. All these experiences that, that could have been powerful. And there, and there certainly were some, like moments that I had on stage and, and singers that I've met and bands that I've toured with and people that I've met and heard their stories. But for the most part, the world revolves around you, but you have no say in it, in a sense. I had managers that I trusted. I had record companies that I trusted. And you come out of a haze and you go, wait, 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 wait what do you mean? We, we just did that tour and we didn't make any money. What do you mean we were going away for six months when we, we thought it was going to be three weeks? What do we, these things always seem like they were out of our control. I, I'm sort of embarrassed to say that I only started paying attention about four or five years ago to what actually happens as far as the logistical side of touring goes and putting us first over the profits. You know, that's something I never knew. You know, when a tour generates a certain amount of money, that's not how much money the band makes. It's like the band sees a very small part of the overall gross profit of a tour. So it puts a lot of things into perspective. But, you know, you can't connect with family because they live in a different country. You don't really have friends that are true friends because the ones that you do still have live in a different country. So the ones you do have are, are fleeting because let's say you stopped drinking and those friends were the ones that you drank with. They're no longer your friends, right? It's like, these are the kinds of things that you, that you go through. And sure, there are definitely people you meet that you form lasting bonds with and lasting friendships with. But there are so many people that have come and gone that in the moment they felt important or in the moment they felt like they were going to have a lasting effect on your life. And within weeks, sometimes, or months or years, that's no longer the case. My description of touring is you're always lonely, but you're never alone. Okay. You're lonely because you don't really talk to your boys about your feelings. I don't, I'm not going to come out and lay my personal problems at their feet because uh, I'm sure they have their own. And you're lonely because you miss your, your loved ones. So, but you're always surrounded by people. It's a strange mix because often, you know, when you've seen a, a video clip and it's, it's probably like a, but there's somebody standing on a sidewalk and there's all of this blurring of, of motion around them as they speed up the people walking past them. It kind of feels like that a lot of the time that you're on this ride that you have no control over uh, and, and you don't really have any say in it. And it's difficult to invest 
really into something emotionally if you don't really have any control over it. So now that we have control over what we do, now that we have a, a we we veto tours if we don't think that they are worth our time or our money or taking us away from our families. We don't just tour for the sake of touring because who is being fulfilled by that? So I have a lot more emotional investment now and I feel far more connected to my career than I ever have because I get to call the, the shots now. Whereas before I was just led to believe that I was being taken care of. And as long as that bus doesn't break down, keep going because that's really all that's important. I fired managers because I went to rehab in 2006 and they got mad at me because they wanted to make money on a tour that we had booked at the time. The woman I was dating was pregnant with my son and she gave me an ultimatum and I took the ultimatum and I went to rehab and, and I immediately, <laughs> these guys were angry at me because they were losing commission. So I fired them and then moved on to the next manager thinking that, that this one's going to be different. And I think to, a degree, every manager brought some good with them, right? But I think also 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years, uh, five years ago, I wasn't really emotionally invested in the outcomes of a tour or, or <clears throat> I didn't even look, to, I, I never even saw the books until a few years ago. I never even asked for a tour budget till a few years ago. So in many senses, there was just disconnection throughout my entire, you know, let's call it the first 15 years. Um, because I was young and selfish and living in the moment, living for myself. Then I had my brother die. Now I'm depressed, living for myself, numbing the pain. And then my dad dies. And then I'm doing that again. And then finally we get off the road and then there's lockdown and priorities shift. I get to see my daughter's milestones, <clears throat> which I otherwise would have missed. You know, I'm there to help her potty train. I'm there. I watch videos of her from the start. And you, you hear her speak now and her vocabulary is insane because we speak to her like an adult and we speak to her like a, like a regular person. But I was there for all of that. And I'm so, I'm connected to all of this that I, that I have now. You know, uh, I got married and divorced in 2002, all within a short space of time with my eldest daughter had just been born when I moved over and that fell apart. So that was another thing that I was like, I completely came off, off the rails because my kid and my wife wouldn't even hang around for more than nine months. So that broke my heart basically. And then I, I think I just went into like this autopilot of, um, I became so jaded and so angry <laughs> that, that I just threw all caution to the wind and became someone, honestly, I, I wouldn't recognize now. In fact, if I, if I run into somebody like me now, I get really annoyed by them. <laughs> like when I was that young guy, right? Uh, doing everything to just piss people off, doing everything for a noble cause, which turned out not to be anything other than trying to get a stir out of people. And I wish that I had, in, yeah, just invested more in myself, honestly, and developed things about myself. I wish, I wish I'd taken more of a look at how to break bad habits, like how to break my habits of, of when somebody criticizes me or tells me, or if somebody says something to me, that I immediately take it as a negative about myself and then get defensive. And by getting defensive, I get angry. So it's like I have this really terrible response to not even criticism, just somebody honestly expressing how they feel. Oftentimes, my wife will just say she, that she's feeling something. And I'll immediately assume it's my fault. I immediately get defensive. And as a child, my, my learned behavior was you go on offense to defend yourself. So that's what, that's what I was taught just the experiences. And that's how 
I was basically required to to look after myself was to the best defense as an offense. And I, it's taken me 40 years. You know, I'm 44 now, but it took me 40 years to get to a point where like, I have to start working on that too. I wasn't even taking care of myself. I wasn't paying attention to myself. You know what I mean? Time flies by. And before you know it, it's been 20 years, which is, a, it's just incredible in itself. But I, I would say the last four or five years have been the best of those years because, you know, my presence in the experience and my presence in my act, well, my active participation in things beyond get on stage and play a show. So whether that's the business side of it, whether that's the touring budgets, whether that's the merchandise designs, whether that's the merchandise budgets, all that stuff, I'm actively in it. I'm almost to the point where I call the shots, right? And that's kind of a, a big regret that I wasn't that all along. I, I just kept running from stuff. I, as long as I kept running, kept playing, kept being on a bus or a plane, kept putting drugs and booze in me, as long as I kept doing all of those things, the problems would never catch up. And that's an admission that does conjure some shame. But yeah, that's kind of how I chose to handle things. This thing that you were saying before about always lonely, but never alone. I think a lot of people feel yeah. like that. And it's interesting because you're you're going into at least what I think a lot of people feel is one of the potentially loneliest times and never alone times is when you have two young kids. And, you know, I, I always say to couples, never judge your marriage until your youngest is five, <laughs> because this thing that you're, that you're talking about, about the criticism or people expressing emotions, you know, as mm -hmm. you're talking about this, always lonely, never alone, I'm, I'm beginning to think that that's, at least for me, I feel like that's what happens when someone expresses emotions that I think are even remotely my fault or yeah. somehow directed towards me is there's that immediate sense of loneliness in that process. You know, there's someone, there's definitely yeah. someone there. There's someone talking to you. So I'm not alone, but I am lonely. And I'm beginning to wonder whether the defensiveness is to some degree a reaction to that loneliness as much as the substance of the criticism. Like there's someone yeah. who actually may be trying to connect in some ways by being honest, but it right. feels very lonely to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think that's true. I, for me, the factors are: I, I don't like disappointing people. I was told enough as a child that that's what I do. I, I think also that's how I was treated as a child. That, that that was I was taught by my mother that that's how you respond to things, right? And take everything personally because that's what she did. But I'm talking about taking it personally. It's not even criticisms necessarily. Always, it can just be, hey, you know, I'm not feeling so good today. Oh, what, what have I done? What, you know, then immediately I, I assume it's my fault, right? And it's not, but you still kind of take it personally because I see it as a failure, right? I, I see it as a, a, like my role in a family is to try and make everybody's life easier, happier, healthier. And if I get told that everyone isn't 100% happy and healthy, then it must be my fault somehow. And I don't know why I take that blame, but it's been my whole life that that's been my response is <clears throat> if somebody tells me for whatever reason that they aren't having a good day or, or and that's just a, just a broad example, but I immediately assume it's got something to do with me because why are you telling me? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, if somebody comes out and says something like that, then I'm assuming A, it's my fault and B, I'm supposed to fix it or help fix it. And those are both potentially true, but also that they, they may not have anything to do with it at all. It might just be somebody's communicating with you and then trying to bridge that loneliness gap, 
right? <clears throat> yes, I think you're right about that too. With with, with the sometimes with the children's like my wife and I used to sit at nighttime after my daughter went to bed, and we'd sit and we'd catch up on a show or two, and then go to bed, right? And we haven't been able to do that now for months. And there's a there's a bit of sadness there because there's like a, it's a connection thing that gets lost a little bit. But we also understand it's fleeting, right? We understand it's it's just a, a temporary circumstance we find ourselves in for now. And it will get better and it has got better from, you know, last month, it's already better this month and next month will get even more joyful in, in the sense of the, 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 the he's going to be three months old and he's going to start doing things like rolling over on, onto his stomach or he's going to be smiling, you know, so he becomes interactive. So there's things, there's these little milestones you have to work towards, <laughs> but you feel like two ships passing in the night sometimes because I'm running one side and she's taking care of the other side of the kids. So I'm, I'm taking care of the elder one, which means I'm, I'm out of the house running errands and things and i come back and she's taking care of the youngest one who's can't survive without her right now <laughs> so it's a really important job too but we stay in in good spirits at least about it i mean occasionally when there hasn't been enough sleep i can certainly get a, a short leash <laughs> but i don't know I, it's it's a response i need to change and it's like when you break a bad habit i used to say i'd listen back to interviews and if i said like too much I would annoy myself. So be like, like, you know, those two, those two words, I've, I've actively had to go back and get out of my way of speaking because I don't want them to become little stop gaps between thoughts. Um, you know, um, is, is one that I, I doesn't really bug me too much because I don't necessarily think that I, I, I overuse that as much as I, I did some of the others, but it's a habit I, I broke. And, and it's the same thing is, my reflexive response, I think, was taught to me through my experiences. See, my mother was very good at nothing was ever her fault, right? So if she's got something going on, it's your fault. Maybe she didn't ever say it was my fault, but she certainly wouldn't say uh, it wasn't my fault. And if I'm, you know, I'm a young kid, I'm, I'm three, four, five, um, while we still lived with her and then we we moved in with my father, yeah, those are those formative years where you really you really establish the big sort of emotional reactions, I think. And hers were always outbursts. I mean, she was a woman who was having affairs with married men, leaving us in cars at nighttime while she's going to go sleep with this guy, while we sit in, we sit in an abandoned shopping mall parking lot at two in the morning. You know, she was a really irresponsible, horrible woman. And she was horribly emotionally inept. I rolled a car one time, for example. I was 19 years old. I, I was irresponsible. I went into town and I had a fight with somebody I was seeing at the time and got drunk, drove back home, fell asleep, rolled the car and, and survived miraculously. And she showed up two hours later and she lived 10 minutes away. I called her. I said, hey, I just had an accident. Come get me. It was just a piece of highway that nobody owned. So there was like, there was no police but they had, you know, private ambulances came in the tow car. They pulled the truck away. So I called her and she came two hours later because she first had to do her makeup, take a bath. Um, and her makeup and taking a bath would take her about an hour and a half. That's That was her daily routine because she was just all about herself. And she shows up with a half-drank Coca-Cola and a pack of smokes. And I'm just sitting on the side of a highway for, for two hours waiting for her. I mean, I could probably walk to her. And somehow... You know, when I got offended by that, it was, I was the bad guy in the scenario. Like, hey, I rolled a car, I almost died. I asked you to come, come get me. It took you two hours. Do you not care? And then I get the response of, you know, she gets angry at me and then would not speak to me for days. Like, 
would just disengage completely. Yeah. So there was there was this this woman who should not have been a mother, I, in my opinion. <laughs> those were the, the learned behaviors that I had. So I'm I'm trying to break those habits. And I, you know, I've been seeing a guy who's doing all the deep counseling stuff, like that goes back into your childhood stuff. The stuff that like he told me is like if this doesn't suck, I'm not doing it right. <laughs> so I said, okay, that sounds like like real, real deal therapy. And yeah, my mother was, was a, was a horrible person. Uh, she still is. I just don't know where she is, but like, you know, she would literally leave us in, in, in cars while she went to sleep with married men. She would go out and get hammered. She would have boyfriends that would like, you know, throw us downstairs. She would have boyfriends that would like honk their super loud horn in our ears as little kids when they do it, tell us to go, hey, check out the engine. You know, just, just these abusive guys. And I have spent many years of my life wondering why I wasn't good enough, why these other people were more important than I was. And, and that for me is a, is a goal with my kids is to say, they know that they are more important than anybody else. And I want them to know that if somebody says something to them or, um, tries to to insinuate something about them or just generally bullies them. I want them to know that they, want, <clears throat> they don't come home and say, well, that person said that about me, so that's true. No, that's not true. I want you to understand that your mother and I can tell you a thing and that's the truth and not to be influenced by other people. And that's, you know, that's going to be difficult, obviously, but I certainly don't want them to think that I'm the one making them feel that way, which is how I felt. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting, you know, you know, very obviously in a very upsetting way about what you're describing with your, with your mother, as compared to your wife in the context of, of feelings or criticisms mm -hmm. that in the situation with your mother, the expression of feelings, whether or not it was coming from you or whether it was coming from her yeah. was most likely, if you're playing the percentages going to lead to some form of abandonment, Yes, whether or not she's <laughs> going to physically abandon or oh, yeah. emotionally abandoned. So it's sort of like, okay, yeah. in, that, in that context, the habit, as maybe it should have been, is that I can predict mm -hmm. that if emotions are expressed, something bad's going to happen in the realm of abandonment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell, right? <laughs> so, so, so the question becomes, how, how do you not develop that habit? Because the truth is, is that percentage-wise, it wound up being about you, even if it wasn't about you. I, what was interesting about the way you described the conversation with your with your wife is that there's a setting at the beginning of we're connected. This mm -hmm. is going to be okay, and we have to figure it out. And I I feel like somehow if people could do that and they really could connect around this and sort of say like almost again like think about a habit you know not the likes the the, the almost the opposite of being like. When right. one of us expresses emotions, this is an opportunity for us to get closer, not more distant. I think that if everybody could do that, and it was in fact true, you yeah. know, people were committed to that. I think people would feel less vulnerable to those kind of critical moments or the self-criticism because it's like, hey, this is going to be a win one way or another. It might be a tough win, yeah, but it's going to be a win. I think most people, if they know it's ultimately going to be a win to improve connection, will say like, like you're saying with kids, like, look, I'm willing to tolerate a few months of not mm -hmm. connecting at night because we're so right. tired and we have a kid because I know this is going for a greater connection. Good. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's certainly a vulnerability to it all. Um, that's not easy to express or allow myself to get into. Right. Because it's like I spent my, my childhood having to fight for my brother, fight for myself. 
against grown men and oftentimes would have to be the one that steps between my brother and a grown man, right? And take the physical abuse instead of him and never allow yourself a moment of vulnerability, not around him, certainly, because you have to show him, you have to show the strength, right? Even, even when my brother died, I went home and I saw my parents and my dad had aged like 10 years in a day, it looked like, but I had to be the one that was, again, wasn't allowed to show the vulnerability because they were falling apart, right? And I had to go, this is my my younger brother who I went through a bunch of traumatic stuff with, uh, who was my best friend, but they're losing a kid who they haven't seen in a little while. And it's out of the blue. It was so out of character for him. And so I'm, I go there and because I see the emotional crisis that they're in i just i had to be the, the the rock i had to be the stalwart person in the room who remained calm and who was you know and again wasn't allowed to be vulnerable i was only allowed to be vulnerable when i was on my own or when i was alone and being on my own was not a good thing either so i didn't want to be on my own maybe vulnerability is something that i've always been running away from too but it's a, it's a tough one because it's a risk that you take, but you know, if you don't trust the person that you're taking the risk with, and then why are you even married to them? Right. So I, and I do trust it. I, I, I trust it implicitly that I can, I can be vulnerable and I won't be looked at as, you know, anything other than who I am. I won't be looked at as weak. I won't be looked at as, as <clears throat> less of a man or whatever that even means anymore. Right. But I think that I'm more open to those kinds of conversations now and less of these long drawn out confrontations that last days rather resolve them sooner just because it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't really achieve anything. And, and it's it, everything is now bigger than my really poor response to a statement that's being made. And I take personally, it, I, I know it's not about me after thinking about it for a little while. And I know that it's, it's not told to me in order for me to be the one to solve it, the current problem. But those are just my, uh, reflexive responses is I want to be, I've always had to look after, take care of, protect. And my immediate response when I get told something that makes me think I'm not living up to those expectations and I'm, I get, I get ashamed of myself. I mean, shame is something that, that I uh, carry around all the time. And, and, not, and I'm the guy that, you know, you walk into a classroom and says, Hey, who stole this off my desk? I go red and act guilty even though i would never do that you know what i mean like you know who stole the money out of my wallet and i'll look like the one who did it because my physiological responses are the guy that's trying to hide a secret you know break out in the sweats and the nervousness and when i know for a fact it wasn't me as again growing up everything was my fault or my brother's fault but mostly my fault um not so much with my with my father obviously that there was a much healthier upbringing and he, he wasn't like that, but it actually might've been until I was about six or seven. Um, it was because I was in third grade. So up until I was about seven years old, I was told everything was my fault. And somehow that message is the only thing that got through. <laughs> and it was, it was so deeply etched in my, my psyche. It, it's been very, very rough to shake. And again, that's why that woman probably shouldn't have had children. I mean, uh, I'm glad I'm here. Don't get me wrong. But my mother was a terrible person. That's why I haven't spoken to her now in about 20 years, because I didn't, I couldn't stand the constant negativity and, and it never changed. Every time I, like I would leave and I'd come back and I would say, Hey, um, 
I'm going to give her a shot. She would be worse than she was the time before. You know what I mean? So I, every time I allowed myself to be vulnerable, I was let down again. And then it became a shame. Yeah, I felt ashamed that I had allowed myself to be fooled again and again and again. So it's, it's just pattern of behavior that's been my, my entire life that I, need, again, I'm, I'm, I'm working at, at changing. But the, you know, the more I dig into the, 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 the amount of damage my mother did to me, it answers a lot of questions and, and certainly solves some riddles, but it, it begs the question, like, how many other people don't realize that how much damage they could do to their kids you know, in those early years? I, I think that the thing you're talking about, that one dynamic, I think that there is a lot that kids can handle. If in the moment, and this gets back right to the beginning of what we were talking about, is it about me or is it about them? I think this is in any relationship, but especially in a parental relationship. If you can look at the person and say, okay, I'm telling you there's a way I'm being hurt. If they can look back at you and say, hey, your being hurt matters. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, your healing from that hurt is more important than whatever (laughs) damage this is doing to my ego or my self-concept. Right. I think a, I think a lot of things can be fine. You yeah. know what I mean? Because yeah. I think kids realize it's like, listen, and, and again, it gets to the the core of what you were saying. It's like, well, why would someone always assume that it was their fault? It was like, well, percentage wise, it was not only always your fault, but it always yeah. it, it never led to anything good. So it's not even like taking yeah. it your fault led to some wonderful carrot at the end of this stick. You know, <laughs> yeah. that to me, and I think I think as a parent, that's one of the lessons that I, you know, try, cause it's, it's very hard because, you know, whether it's, it's your wife or your kids, you know, thinking that you did something that mm-hmm. hurt them immediately right. goes right to the core of you. You think, <laughs> but, but the thing is, is that once it's in the core of you, now it's about you and not wanting to be hurt. And, right. and you have to kind of like pull yourself out, not you, but for me, like I have to like pull myself out of that and be like, okay, how, how can I somehow not just focus on the fact that I've been hurt because I've hurt them. That's the core of the whole thing, because then anything ultimately can be understood and resolved if there's right. a mutual commitment for that. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, I've found that um, if, if you don't take the time to actually listen to what you're being told and you, you knee jerk response to, Oh, it's my fault. You're not really actually listening to what they're saying. And then, the way it makes you feel becomes more important somehow, which is, which is, uh, it's just crazy. So I, that's what I'm also. Well, it's, yeah. It's, and it's not because shame is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, shame is a, is an all encompassing, horrible kind of gross feeling. And if you've experienced it with, which most people have, the one thing you know, is that you just don't want to experience it again. Right. right. And then paradoxically by avoiding it, it actually makes it more likely to happen because <laughs> exactly in because in those moments all you have to do is sort of be like all right I'm I don't like this I don't like what I what I'm hearing about myself right. or but I'm listening I'm gonna try so that we can make this something that builds us rather than breaks us down. And that little choice of being like I would rather break you down to keep myself away from shame. That's the to me that's the whole thing. Yeah, and depending on the level of shame, it's that's the level of the response. <laughs> so it's like that's when you end up saying things you wish you hadn't said that you don't mean, but it's your defense mechanism, right? And and like you say, I agree with you wholeheartedly that 
I think the one thing that I fear more than anything else is, is, is that feeling of shame because it's not just the shame. It's everything that goes with it. It's the disappointment of other people in me, not so much in myself, but I feel ashamed because they are disappointed in me and I'm not living up to their expectations. I think about a lot of those experiences when I was a kid and I'm basically just responding like my mother did. And that in itself is shameful because she's terrible. So, but when it's, when it's been a reflex for so long, it's quite difficult to break. That's why that's when the thing like an old trick, like counting to 10 before you say anything actually can come in handy because you can give it a pause, get out of that emotional cyclone that you that you're in right now, maybe step back, reevaluate what was being said because you're actually listening to it now and come back with a response that isn't one of, well, you know, screw you. Because I, th- I think one of the, the dangers and all this is, oh, this is irrational. Oh, this is distorted. Whatever. It's be like, no, no, no. There is a lot of experience that would suggest to me that yeah. it is perfectly rational. It is perfectly reasonable to assume mm-hmm. that, A, I'm going to get blamed for this. B, right. this is, this is going to go really badly. And it's going to reaffirm the fact that I don't have the connection with this person that I want. It's yeah. like, okay, so I can understand why I'm in that zone. And certainly, if the person that I'm dealing with now is that same kind of person, it's also very reasonable for me to, as as my sort of first thought, to say like, oh, maybe this is happening again. That little pause to be like, but is that who I am dealing with here? You know, or or am I dealing with someone who has a different function for expressing negative emotion to me? Oh, she's yeah. They couldn't they couldn't be further from each other, right? I mean, my mother was an emotional manipulative blackmailer who used shame as a tool against us, right? And, and and that was kind of what kept us in check. When she did give us spankings, she would beat us until her arm couldn't swing anymore. But that was her that was her sort of keep you in check tool. And I was a timid kid. You know, I was not very adventurous. I became so scared of everything that I wouldn't even go in the ocean with my parents. My brother would go in and have the time of his life while I'd sit on the beach. And then years later, I was, you couldn't get me out of the ocean, but it, it was, you know, I, I spent so much of my life afraid and, and not having experiences because of the fear that I was feeling. And, and oftentimes the fear was that I would look silly, therefore feel shame, that I would annoy my parents, then feel shame. It's, it's bizarre to me that I can you become hardwired to a point, you know, because when the wiring is all put together, when you're very young, you have to unravel those, I guess, to, to, to sort of figure it out. But there's not even a, a smidge of commonality between my mother and my wife, right? There's not, not the way they see the world, address me, or how they make me feel about myself, not even a passing resemblance. Yet the overriding emotion is always the one that was instilled 35 years ago that just supersedes everything else. It's just like raises its head and takes over. I think that's also just really unfair on my wife. Even she doesn't deserve that because that's not, she has no part in that. She has no part in that. She didn't create the feeling that I'm feeling right now by saying what she said or the information I was given. I am responding to it completely wrongly coming from the person it's coming from. Now, if those same words are coming from my mother, oh, absolutely. We know where this is headed. That's the other thing is that I'm I'm trying to get better at is is to is to keep the perspective where it's supposed to be and say it's not her and this person is not out to make me. Like my mother's job was to make me feel bad about myself, right? 
using the shame as a tool, using fear as a tool. And she accomplished that mission quite often. And again, my wife doesn't want me to feel bad. She's, that's not what she's here for. And she's just not that kind of a person. She's not malicious and mean. But again, <clears throat> I, just got, I just have to do the count to 10 thing. Maybe uh, put things in perspective because my knee-jerk response is always the same. And it's, it's, it's probably done a bunch of harm to relationships with friends or whatever throughout my life because it's if it's if that's my go-to response which is so aggressive because it needs to you got to protect that little boy that's that's hidden inside you know what i mean i really i admire the fact that look you're like you're talking about like hey i realize i have this different this response that has mm-hmm. not that has not served me well it probably served me well in that situation uh, if every time I assumed, hey, this is going to be a good conversation, and it was another bad conversation, it probably was healthy on some level for you to be like, hey, this isn't going to go well, and I need to be yeah. defensive in that situation. But to be able to then say, hey, this is a different person. I'm yeah. seeing how this pattern might have hurt me, and I'm actually to be able to even articulate like, hey, this is a different person, and we have a different relationship, and mm-hmm. expressing emotions is constructive for right. us. Now <laughs> yeah. I. Now I got to practice and, and remind myself, it's like, hey, that lonely, never alone thing. It's mm-hmm. like, it doesn't have to be that way. It, it was that way yeah. in yeah. these other circumstances, just to know that it doesn't have to be that way. I, to me, that's very impressive to even have gotten to that point, because I think most people never get to that point, quite frankly, when they've yeah. had the kind of experiences that you describe. Uh, I mean, there's other times too, like, any vulnerabilities that I've shown, there was there was uh, to people. There were also nice people. Um, I was led down a painful route. So the first divorce in two thousand two, I said I would never get married again because I was done. And eighteen, nineteen years later, I married my wife. That was a big decision for me. It was like because I have to trust her, right? It's a massive decision because in my mind, and then it's not it's not even about finances or anything like that. It's it's about making the commitment and saying. I don't take this lightly. I, I never take my room off. I don't ever take it off, right? I don't I don't take it off at nighttime. I don't take it off in the shower. I, it's always on because to me, it's a whole different ball game. And yeah, I'm happy. I'm proud of my wife, my kids. It's time to like really allow the vulnerability to be exposed more and to let the trust grow, right? I mean, it's I've never been a give, given a reason not to be. I may have done the opposite. It's a long process and an arduous process to get to a place where you feel like you respond as, as a regular human being, <laughs> where you just go, oh, cool, feelings. Let's talk about them instead of, ooh, feelings. No, let's not do that because <laughs> this is going to end poorly. And I think I think maybe more more people could do that too. It's just like if something annoys you or irritates you or upsets you or offends you, take a beat, think about it, and then reevaluate it and say, hey, was it really as offensive or uh, negative as I originally thought? Or, or did I just take it that way because that's my inherent response. And I I think many of us could benefit from that. Certainly, if you go on social media, you could tell. Like I've got to a point now where I'll just say, hey, I need to, I need to walk away or I need a couple minutes or I need, you know, I just need to go take a couple breaths. And that's already a massive improvement over immediately taking offense and getting defensive, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 not easy. It's but it's like breaking a speech pattern. You have to you have to practice it. You have to you have to keep it in your in your consciousness so that while it's happening, you can say, "Oh, whoa, whoa, I don't want this. I, no, I don't want this anymore." 
but it's also consciously with me all the time. And, and that's the thing I need to do with that response mechanism that I currently have. Is it, it's not there all the time, right? Because it's a shameful thing to think about because it's like, it's not a nice thing to think about. But if I am more aware of it in the moments that it's needed to say, hey, this is that thing. Oh, this is that thing I don't want to be. This is that person I don't want to be. This is that response I don't want to give. This is not how I want my wife to feel because this this is not making her feel comfortable or <laughs> make her feel safe or whatever. And that's going to be the key for me is that short of writing it on my hand <laughs> in the short term. So I can always look down and go, oh, that's right, right. But in the, in, in the moment, it's interesting how a reflex can just completely take over and you have to you have to train yourself again to go wait 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 wait. even if you can't train it to say to just to squash the reflex immediately you can at least say hey no stop take a step back take a couple of breaths and, and reevaluate and that's that's kind of where i'm where i'm getting to it's not a perfect transition <laughs> but the other thing is 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 she's the only person I really, that really knows all these things, like that knows all the things about like how I feel on a day-to-day basis. She's my best friend. She's, she's the person that I, I couldn't be doing this without doing, remembering those things that she's never one time said something that was like purposefully hurtful, not like I was used to. And quite honestly, I lived with my mother till I was 18. You know, I lived with her till I was seven. Then we moved in with my, with my dad because he can, actually convinced her to give us up which was great and then i ran away from home when i was 16 because my dad wouldn't let me play in a band (laughs) and uh moved back in with her and then my brother came and lived with us as well so i basically was the formative years with her then sort of like the tail end of my high school which was not a great experience either but like high school into into becoming an adult quote unquote was all around this woman it's amazing how powerfully she's impacted my communication skills or lack thereof and how much work it takes and how much active diligence it takes that you have to put in the work and the time and the thought to really reverse these silly responses, like, like to, to get mad at somebody for telling you that they don't feel good or, or, or to take it personally because they're just letting you know. <laughs> so it's like, because again, like, like we've already said, it's, it's everything was blamed on me. You know, even some people blamed my brother's death on me, which was Obviously not my fault, but I mean, I carried that for a long time. Like, I was like, maybe it was my fault. Maybe, maybe I should have been in the room. Maybe I should have seen the signs. You know, the, 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 the guilt you carry there as well. It's, it's, it was always very clear to me. Living with her and then living with her again, we still saw her all the time. We would still get bussed over to her on, on the school vacations. So she was a constantly present in our lives, right? Like she would do things like my parents would send us to her in new clothing and then she would send us back in old clothing and keep the new clothing. So we'd have to buy new. And I mean, she was just like, she was really passive aggressive all the time. That was her strength was the passive aggressive stuff. And it's just, it's, it's every time I have a conversation about this woman, it's like, I, I become so much more enlightened about the incredible effect again that we have over our children. Yeah. And it makes me makes me go. It makes me sit here immediately. Goes like, oh, have I done anything that's damaged my daughter? <laughs> you know what I mean? I like immediately. I'm going back, saying, "Geez, what could I undo? What what could I go to her and say, hey, that wasn't what I should be doing? You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't yelling at mommy. I was I was just passionate. And oftentimes that that was the case. But it really is something to be mindful of when you have these little these little sponges around. To you always got to be an example, right? To, so that they know. They know what a healthy response looks like in the future. I don't want her to be like me. It's it's interesting because, you know, when I hear what you went through, I, I don't hear it that you 
weren't able to communicate before and now you're able to communicate, I, I, I hear mm-hmm. it is that you adapted to how you needed to communicate in yeah. an unhealthy system. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you, you communicate through your music and now you're commu- it's, it's more like, I feel like what I'm hearing is you're diversifying your communication portfolio. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's one of the ways that shame develops is that it's sort of like, well, if I have a natural response to an unnatural situation, am I unnatural? You know, or if mm-hmm. I have a, a rational response to an irrational situation, which inherently has to be by some standards, irrational in and of itself. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't trust this person or I don't, I assume that this person, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the thing from Pulp Fiction, it's, it's, it's excessive, but that didn't mean it didn't happen, you know? Right. And it's, and I think a lot of times people own the fact that they have what they consider to be, you know, either irrational or distorted that if you thoughts or, whereas if you look at it in the context, it's like, well, actually that was probably on target, you know, for those things. And so anyway, I'm I'm just, I'm really impressed with (laughs) the fact that you're not only surviving all this, you know, we've, we've talked before about sobriety and and mental health and, and now bringing that into parenting I very much appreciate you sharing these, you know, I know I always come away feeling inspired, like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to work on that now. So uh, I, I know, I know other people will as well. So uh, thank, thank you, you so much, man, for, for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you. I've definitely answered some, some of my own nagging questions. Today. And it's like you said to you, every time I have a conversation like this, it's almost like something else is, is illuminated for me. So I, I thank you for that too. So that I can, it gives me it gives me another sort of piece of the puzzle that I'm putting together, right? And it it makes it easier for me to move forward as far as like with all the stuff we've just been talking about and, and and actually putting it into practice. So it is very helpful, very meaningful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so there you have it. Sean Morgan talking about his mental health journey and how he is working to change the patterns of how he connects to himself and others so that he can have the most authentic and fulfilling life. There is so much to take away from the conversation with Sean, but one thing I wanted to highlight is the idea that Sean brought up of emptying your marbles. Our emotions need to be acknowledged, experienced, and processed in order for us to lead a healthy emotional life. Sometimes we need to work out our emotions, especially if we are struggling with depression, anxiety, anger, substance abuse, or anything else that makes it more difficult for us to have the life that we want. And this skill of being willing to experience and process our feelings takes time and often hard work. If we are having trouble getting started, maybe we can begin by connecting to the music we love. See what makes us feel good or helps us when we feel depressed, anxious, or angry. We can consider writing down our feelings through journaling so we can start an internal dialogue. If we have friends, family, community, or support groups that we trust, maybe we can share our experiences with them. And we can also seek out mental health professionals who may be able to help guide us on our mental health journey. Whatever it is, it is important that we take ourselves, our emotions, and our mental health seriously and give ourselves the time that we deserve to help empty our marbles and process how we feel. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for working with me on our podcast. And I want to thank Ars Longa Media founder, Dr. Patrick Beeman, for partnering with us, as well as Aaron McHugh for producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. 
And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.